Hey fellow foodies, sorry this one is a little bit later in the day than usual. The holidays have been quite busy, as I'm sure you've all felt as well. This week I interviewed the lovely Luke Zamp. Luke owns the Driftless Cafe in Wisconsin and is the host of the PBS show Wisconsin Foodie, where he delves deep into the behind-the-scenes stories of, well, your food. We talked cheese, we talked food sustainability, and we talked traveling because Luke was just filming in the incredible city of Tokyo. I'd like to issue a trigger warning to listeners for this episode because there is a portion of this podcast where Luke recalls filming about a highly sensitive and serious topic, a mass shooting. I hope you enjoy this episode and please join me in welcoming Luke Sam. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited to have you and great to see you again. We saw each other a few weeks. <laughs> it's good to see you too. <laughs> for listeners, we actually met in Wisconsin a few weeks back when I was doing a journalism trip, but I would love to, if we could start by getting kind of into your background. When did cooking become a passion for you? Sure. Uh, cooking became a passion for me. I think... <laughs> Honestly, I, I realized that cooking was really important to me around the time that like I was searching for my own identity as a human, quite frankly. So I would say like my early 20s, actually even late mm-hmm. teens. I, uh, I grew up in a really small community in southwestern Wisconsin, like population 745. I uh, wow. graduated with 23 kids. <laughs> yeah, it's teeny tiny. Um <laughs> I graduated with 23 kids, 17 of whom I started kindergarten with, uh, and in a very, very small school. And, uh, I was constantly searching for like this identity, like who I was and who I could be in the world. And, uh, about the only person that I, I had ever really seen come out of my small community that had quote unquote made it in the world, uh, was a music producer and rock and roll drummer by the name of Butch Vig. And Butch, when I was like, you know, it was 1991, and this album, Nirvana Nevermind, came out. And it it kind of blew my face off. It was like one of those moments, those seminal (laughs) moments that you have in life where you're like, oh my gosh, this speaks to the core of who I am. And uh, I, I need to understand more about this. And because it was, you know, one of those pieces that I adopted for myself. And uh, I uh, actually started college in Chicago uh, to be a recording engineer because I thought that that was like the closest way to becoming Butch Vig. And so Uh I uh, found myself for the first time in my life, Olivia, in a Whole Foods and it was one of those pieces that like <laughs> I had obviously heard about, like the the Whole Foods phenomenon, but it was 1998 mm-hmm. and I was broke and uh, I was homesick living in a place that was all concrete and, you know, just really, really looking for that sense of who I was and how I fit into the world. And before mm-hmm. I left for college, the CEO of this small cooperative organic dairy uh had given me stacks of free product coupons 
And my mom had worked at the, the cooperative since like, you know, probably the mid nineties, maybe even mm-hmm. a little before that. So uh, when kids from the area graduated high school, uh, they'd be given this gift uh, by the CEO. And so I went into this Whole Foods with all oh. these free Organic Valley coupons. And I walked in and for the first time in my life, I saw an Organic Valley cheese display. And uh, when you're from a town of 745 oh. kids um, or 745 people, uh-huh. like you're constantly trying to explain where you're at in the world. You know, so usually for mm-hmm. me, it was like between Minneapolis and Chicago. And, you know, the the identity okay. politics of that are pretty vague. If you knew Wisconsin, you know, maybe I could say like between La Crosse and Madison, two other municipalities in the state okay. that people might know of. But I mm-hmm. walked into this Whole Foods and I picked up a package of cheese. Uh, and on the back of it said Lafarge, Wisconsin, my hometown. And it was like this massive wave of all the feels kind of came through my whole body. And and I still remember it. And sometimes, um, you know, I I still get pretty emotional because that for me was the moment that I had that initial opportunity to understand who I was and where I was from Mm -hmm. and why food meant so much to me. Because I knew those farmers. I knew the people who were making that delicious, nutritious food and selling it through Organic Valley. And like that was kind of my full circle moment. Everything that I had learned prior to that, you know, growing up with a garden, growing up with a family that, uh, you know, we hunted, we would buy, you know, like mm-hmm. half a steer, half a pig, something like that. And so cooking at home, because there weren't restaurants really, uh, was a very large priority in our family. It kind of really opened my eyes to this connective power of food that I experienced. You know, from that point forward, I kind of like, I tried the whole recording engineer thing and realized, you know what, I'm not actually that interested in this. And then I transferred to the University Mm -hmm. of Wisconsin and I got a degree there with the intention of uh, being an attorney. But then as I was working in college, I was working in Mm -hmm. food. And that for me, uh, when I got to the end of my undergraduate and the start of law school, just took on so much more weight. And then finally, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to do this. Uh, it was the connection to the farmers and the local producers that kind of gave me the, uh, the inspiration to build my life and career uh, on, the, on the backs mm-hmm. of their hard work. Absolutely. So did you go to law school as well? Or you said you started law school and then you left? Yeah, started and then uh, promptly dropped out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought about law school for a hot second and then I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, and, and I think the thing for me, like with law school, it, it was just kind of apparent very quickly that I was going to spend my life uh, trying to uh, mitigate other people's money problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, money is never, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to, declare my own privilege here as a white man in America and say that money has never really been my MO. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, okay. it's, it's makes life a lot easier, but at the same time, it's not why I get up in the morning and do what I do. Uh, right. And I didn't want that to be the focus of why I was on the planet. You know, you get one shot at this uh, mm-hmm. to quote Eminem. And mm-hmm. uh, I didn't really, 
I don't want to spend my time chasing the almighty dollar around uh, trying to find meaning in that. It was it was much more advantageous for me to find a platform and kind of just work my way through it. Do you think that ideal kind of stems from coming from a, such a small hometown that you can kind of appreciate your relationships and maybe the where your food is coming from more versus coming from somewhere like a city or somewhere maybe more populated? Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, the thing that actually uh, strikes me now as I look backwards, mm-hmm. I, I didn't grow up with the blinders on that I think so many people in the American economy do about where your food comes from and the processes mm-hmm. that it takes to get it to your table. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, growing up uh, with the garden, like we, we didn't have food that was shrink wrapped. We didn't have grocery stores like Trader Joe's or Whole Foods, not to take anything away from those, but mm-hmm. like would put good high quality food in front of you that you had access to. It was very much uh, an intensive process for us as a family to really, you know, uh, capture the the harvest of the seasons and like live in that moment. And mm-hmm. our diet definitely reflected that. It, it definitely opened my eyes. And I think, you know, the money piece, I, I, I don't know, I guess as some people just aren't as motivated by money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can say now at this point in my career, having had a lot of the experiences that I've been able to accumulate as a chef, I can see that money, you know, it does play a huge part in how people eat, specifically in America, where, you know, right. food can be expensive, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to. You know, there are cultures around the world that that really celebrate food as this common connection because everybody eats you know, uh, if we're lucky, we eat three times a day, maybe more, but there's this beautiful connective power in food that kind of reduces all of us, uh, to an equal playing field. And I love that medium. I mean, that's a medium for Mm -hmm. growth and, uh, revolution and change. However you want to frame it. Exactly. Yeah, no food is one of those, um, things that just connects everyone pretty much on an even playing field. Like you said, But I'm kind of curious, too, because, like, when I go into a Trader Joe's, I don't really think about what I'm eating, what I'm doing. There's this, like, stigma around food coming from fresh organic ingredients being more expensive. Is that something you run into a lot? Yeah. You know, I think uh, that is a huge obstacle specifically in the American food system, you know, other, other places around the world, you know, it's kind of just the standard, you know, they're not going to raise their food Mm -hmm. with pesticides, herbicides, and that is just commonly accepted. But in America, you know, it's commodified and Mm -hmm. it does carry or carry a higher financial burden for people to walk in and like buy it. And I understand that there are so many obstacles to that. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, even the placement of those particular grocery stores usually don't find those in impoverished neighborhoods or neighborhoods that are kind of on their come up track. So I feel Mm -hmm. like, you know, doing the work of making good food accessible to everyone is very, very important. And while I say all of this, I want to be really, really clear that I don't have any problem whatsoever 
with conventional farming methods. You know, uh, there are so many people producing food on so many different levels and spectrums that I think it's just really important to try and establish a relationship uh, in whatever way we can with some of the people producing our food because it gives it so much more context and a narrative storyline that allows us to actually trust, right? That that mm. big, huge word that sometimes gets so, so scary, it, to be able to trust that food and those farmers and producers uh, who are making some of the, the best food available to them, the resources that they hold, and the lands that they choose to farm. Right, right. And that's kind of what you're trying to portray with Wisconsin Foodie as well. So... The premise yeah. of the show is to kind of discover the stories behind the foods that we eat, pretty much. Exactly. And build build identity, you know, build identity mm-hmm. through that. Uh, I think that there are so many underrepresented stories, specifically, you know, when people have this overview of the upper Midwest being, you know, mainly white, mm-hmm. you know, having this kind of uh, homogenous culture that I've, I've had executives from the Food Network refer to as, as culinary flyover uh, country, which, uh, you know, it, it for a kid like me from the, the upper Midwest who's, who's constantly trying to punch up and say like, hey, no, there, there are cultural stories here that need to be observed. There are pieces of our farming and agricultural community and our food community that aren't getting the representation that they need Wisconsin Foodie definitely provides this platform to be able to mm-hmm. share some of those connective stories. And again, going back to that medium of food as being this connected medium, since the dawn of humankind, humans have been sharing culture and tradition through food since we emerged from mm-hmm. the cave. You know, it's, it's, we wouldn't be where we are right. without that, that cultural, you know, sharing. And so to try and reduce the dissonance, Wisconsin Foodie really, really helps with that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's so interesting that that people, sometimes if you're growing up on the East Coast or the West Coast, you think those are the only places that exist when there's literally so much in between. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a whole... Yeah, there's a whole America in between it. You know, it's wild. Yeah. You believe that? New York yeah. and L.A. and other places. <laughs> yeah, but New York and L.A. are great, too. Don't get me wrong. They are. They are. I am a strong proponent of both. Is there a story or person that you kind of recall speaking to in Wisconsin Foodie that kind of sticks out to you or you remember that you would be able to share? Yeah, of course. You know, I think, uh, and you're going to have to forgive me. I'm coming off of, uh, we just filmed in Tokyo for 10 days, Tokyo and across Japan. Oh my gosh. So I am, uh, yeah, I've got kind of like the oatmeal for brains thing going on when you've, uh, jumped 10 time zones and like are trying to recover. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, a few years ago, last year, actually, last year, last August, uh, we were invited to do uh, a profile on the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin, located in Oak Creek, which is just outside of Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And 
the real impetus for it was it was the 10 year anniversary of Wisconsin's most horrific mass shooting. It was the largest mass shooting. Mm -hmm. And uh, what had happened 10 years prior is uh, a gunman had walked into the Sikh temple and Mm -hmm. uh, opened fire. Uh, He had determined through all sorts of terrible inferences that the Sikh temple was actually uh, a holding place for Islamic radicalists. And, um, you know, the thing that was so compelling about the Sikh temple is the Sikh community practices this act. It's called Lunger. And Lunger is the availability of food at any time of day uh, for anyone, Mm -hmm. no matter what your race, creed, religion, whatever that looks like. They will serve food and it's to be taken, it's it's received as a gift and you sit yeah. on the floor and you break bread with whomever happens to be in the Lunger Hall at that moment. Well, the day of the uh, the massacre, the Sikh uh, parishioners were in the, the Gudwara, which is the word for their temple. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and they're so open to having people come in. Like the principles of a Sikh Gudwara, you have... Uh, entrances and exits at the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And so from all directions, all walks of humanity, people come in and the parishioners were basically putting together longer for that afternoon celebration when a gunman came in and Mm -hmm. he started opening fire. He ended up uh, eventually slaying uh, eight people and then took his own life in the parking lot. And uh, the people who were actually slain were a lot of the, the keepers of the food. And because food is such an important connective medium in that culture, uh, a few of the uh, parishioners who were making rice for that afternoon couldn't (laughs) they couldn't stay hidden because they were worried about scorching the rice so they came out of this closet in the kitchen where they were hiding to turn it off because it was so important to them to have food that was of the most exceptional quality so as a television host you know and and walking in to do the the actual production of this this television episode First and foremost, like I always say that my job is to number one, bring energy, right? So like I want people to be curious. I'm naturally curious as a chef growing up in this really small place. uh, The whole world is brand new to me. But when I walked in and I saw on the doorframe of the temple, a bullet hole that the Sikh community had actually petitioned the FBI to keep, they didn't want to erase the memory of the tragic loss that day below it is this little teeny tiny brass placard. Mm-hmm. It has three words inscribed into it. And it's very simple. It just simply states, uh, we are one. And that wow. through this common connected humanity, regardless of where you're from, how you feel in the Sikh community, we all share the intrinsic qualities of being human beings and the way that that's expressed in that community is through love 
And that love is completely, completely reflected in their food and their ability to break bread with anyone, anytime. So coming in 10 years later, I was super nervous about like, okay, how do I bring energy? Yeah. How do we tell a story of connection and love mm-hmm. and growth in the face of this senseless tragedy? And so we had three days to do this taping. And the first day, you know, it's all about building trust and respect, which is, you know, I think the the hallmark for working with cultures that maybe are not as common to us. So, you know, I approached it with tremendous humility. They asked us to go into the temple. All I ever want to do is follow the the cultural customs to ensure that, you know, I, I'm representing the fact that I am here to do the good work and not be mm-hmm. standoffish. And so uh, the second day, it was so beautiful. I was in the kitchen with like 15 Sikh women and it ranged from like high school kids to grandmothers. And we were making samosa. We were putting together like 2000 samosa for this event. And (laughs) so they, they, it it was, it was so great. They stuck me on the microwave station at first and I'm like, okay, I can do this one. And I'm talking to people in the kitchen and uh, you know, the mood is lightning and you know, they're all kind of laughing because they have this, you know, wacky American in there um, who's like, you know, trying to just get people to at least loosen up to the point where we can make progress in the conversation. And then they mm-hmm. invited me over into the samosa making line. And so I'm standing there um, with all these women. And I start to catch this vibe, Olivia, where uh, <laughs> I could tell they're kind of laughing at me because the younger members of the community <laughs> are like watching me like, uh. and so this really, really old lady next to me, she looks at me and she's like, you don't speak uh, Punjabi by chance, do you? And I, I was like, no. And she's like, good. And so then like, it was just, it was an uproar of laughter. But after, the, after that whole process of being able to show them that, yes, I was there to help in this process. I was there to do the work. Mm-hmm. This amazing sensation uh, kind of came over me. And that was this sensation of just love. And they, they talked all the time about how they express their love through food and how food is this amazing connector. And after that, that taping, uh, my life hasn't been the same. You know, I approach every single opportunity I can with the idea of bringing people together. And sometimes it is over the really nasty bits of humanity. We're able to connect Mm -hmm. and find that common ground. But always, 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 if I have food as a medium, I know that I can lean on that and create a better understanding uh, for a world with less dissonance and more love. Wow. That sounds like a really life-changing experience. I would have cried. I did. Right there. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I've been known to break it down yeah, on when camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that 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 bullet holes that takes a lot of strength for them to have to walk by that every single day and but I think you kind of sometimes I mean this is a layered statement but see the worst of humanity so then you can come together and kind of intertwine together and just realize hey we're all the same yeah and 
food is the common denominator. Totally. I mean, it's, uh, you can't know beauty if you don't know pain. And, uh, I think, uh, specifically in, uh, in America right now, you know, we have ways of, of manufacturing dissonance and like obstacles to connection, but, uh, food, Mm -hmm. uh, happens to be the best, I think, medium to breaking those obstacles down and creating a more unified version of, of who we are moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. And I was trying to, when I was in Wisconsin, I was kind of looking around at all the kitchens and something that really struck me when I was there was the farmer's market that you guys have. Yeah. The producer only one. I was just smiling like ear to ear walking around the entire time because everyone just felt so calm and peaceful and everyone was just happy and sharing food and talking to the farmers. And it was just like one of those serene moments that I just like, you have to kind of step back and realize the stresses in your life don't matter as much as you think they do. Totally. You know? Yeah. The Dane County farmer's market um, is a vibe. It, it really is. And it, without yeah. that, I mean, I know that when I was, uh, starting my journey in the culinary world as a professional, I would go to the farmer's market because there would be younger farmers there that I grew up with who would drive, you know, mm-hmm. the two and a half hours from like my, my home area to be able to sell there and like seeing how connected and in love mm-hmm. with the world they really were uh, by being able to, mm-hmm. to share their potatoes or, you know, whatever it was that really gave their farm identity it was nothing short of miraculous. And uh, again, it goes back to that idea of knowing where your food comes from and some of these producers Mm -hmm. that closes the gap for a lot of us about, you know, going to the market and being able to purchase, you know, an anonymous vegetable or a piece of fruit or cheese or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, When you know the storylines and the people who are definitely toiling to make that happen, it really creates this beautiful conversation uh, around, Mm -hmm. you know, just the interconnectedness that we all share. Yeah, yeah. And this is a little off topic, but you are an incredible storyteller. Oh, thanks. I know that's your job. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But I just wanted to throw it out there. You're very encapsulating. Like, (laughs) That's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad. I I feel, uh, you know... Sometimes I wonder, like, without the the medium of being able to serve people small bites uh, or at least eat their way mm-hmm. through my stories, if they really do work. Uh, but I appreciate mm-hmm. that compliment. And, uh, you know, I, I have no plans on, on yeah. stopping the stories because uh, I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, I think so, too. There's there's always a story for everyone, no matter where you look. Hey, that's right. I want to actually get your opinion because the show and Wisconsin in general is very focused on sustainability. How do you think chefs can decrease food waste? Yeah. Where it doesn't like affect creativity or flavor kind of thing. Totally. Uh, Decreasing food waste, you know, having just traveled uh, to Japan, as I indicated, You know, one of the things, uh, and it's kind of a running joke in Japanese culture, like when the Americans walk in, 
you know, the, uh, the portion sizes increase exponentially, uh, because we're known <laughs> for like, you know, we, we totally feedback it and that's cool. Uh, I don't want to take yeah. anything away from anybody, uh, because every once in a while, like, you know, you just want to sit down and feel that sense of comfort. But, um, you know, portion sizes in, in that country specifically, you know, it's a lot of like smaller bites and they have uh, rich cultural traditions of like smaller plates, but like lots of the smaller plates that I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in Western culture, even if it's the uh, idea of reframing how we plate food and a lot of the foods that we use, um, you know, we can do a better job. I think food waste is one of those pieces that uh, we kind of get caught up in because there's a perception of value. And for those of us with restaurants, you know, we're always fighting to keep restaurant diners coming back. And so we feel like we have to throw the Mm -hmm. kitchen sink at them, you know, and, and then they walk away stuffed and maybe they feel satiated or like, this was an incredible Mm -hmm. buy. But until we kind of shift the focus and the lens of the American dining system to really like filling us up physically, as opposed to filling us up emotionally, um, I think you'll, you'll, you'd start to see a lot of progress in that way. And plus, I mean, sometimes uh, we can just be wasteful. You know, there's there there's this idea that like, well, I will I will use all these ingredients and I'll make it I'll cook it down into an essence. And uh, when you're doing that as a professional chef, there is definitely a lot of loss in that. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. it's hard to justify the prices for restaurants that really look to do good specifically in the food sustainability and waste categories. But like, those are the, those Mm -hmm. are the restaurateurs that you really want to support. Uh, or at least I really want to support. I don't want to speak for you, Olivia, because maybe, you know, maybe feedback in it is where you live. Like, I don't know, (laughs) but like, I, 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 you know, (laughs) you didn't strike me as that, but like, it's cool. No, um, <laughs> I tend to skip the fast food and all yeah. of that, but you need to indulge every once in a while. That's right. You know? That's right. You, you got to have a little bit of darkness with the light and a little bit of lightness with the dark. Uh, so, you know, everything in moderation, mm-hmm. including moderation itself, uh, is uh, is a wise way to kind of approach it. But I really think, you know, I, I saw a statistic a few years ago that like 46% of all food in the United States, food produced here. Uh, ends up being wasted. Okay. Um, and that is, oh. yeah, it's wild. Uh, and a lot, it is. And a lot of it ends up, uh, you know, if it's not perfect, it doesn't ever see the uh, the shelves of your grocery store. If it's not first quality, you know, you're not going to have uh, ample opportunity to find it. Uh, so I really think that mm-hmm. uh, Americans can do right by the food system. And do a lot of work mm-hmm. on decreasing that waste by going to a farmer's market. <laughs> and maybe if that kale's got a couple bug bites in it, uh, you're going to cook it down anyway. Or you're going to put it in a smoothie. Or right. you're going to like find an application. Not a lot of people are eating like raw kale out there. Um, not because it's not delicious, but <laughs> you know, it's a little toothy, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to lie to kick it here, Olivia. If you don't like kale, that's cool too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually have kale in my fridge right now, and I'm incorporating it into my diet yeah. a little bit because I think I need more grease you, in my life, but I'm trying to like it. Exactly. <laughs> the trick to cooking with kale is to make it kind of not taste like kale. 
<laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> it. I'm gonna. I like arugula and I like spinach, but kale has been a tricky yeah. one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta saute the the heck out of it. Uh, I usually like it with a little bit of lemon juice, salt, black pepper, chili flake, you know, onion and garlic. Just okay. kind of cook it down, and it's salty, and then you get that acidity, and then the chili kind of kicks in. It carries it through. Uh, kale is one of those staple ingredients that we seem to have more than our fair share of here in the upper Midwest. So uh, I learned early in my mm-hmm. career, I better uh, embrace that one uh, because it's not going away. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get rid of the kale smoothies, but I'll <laughs> take your advice and I'll do that. All right. Best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to go back to your advice on portion control, because I think that's really interesting. Because when a lot of people go to Europe as well, they're like, oh, I lost so much weight. And there's a lot of different factors that are incorporated in that, walking a lot, whatever mm-hmm. it is. But I don't think they realize how much smaller their portions are there. Right. Like even just a pasta dish, yeah. it's probably what, a fourth, a third, I don't know. But like, and then you're satiated and then you're done and that's yeah. it instead of just going ham on the it. plate being literally the size <laughs> <head>. yeah <laughs> like, like here it's like the plate's the size of my head and I feel like I have to finish it all because I don't want to yeah. waste it but it's literally 10 times the amount that's probably dramatic but like three times totally the and I think <laughs> I think the Europeans kind of have something right in the fact that they like look for the quality of ingredients you know, uh, and to tie this back to like right. how we first kind of encountered each other and met, you know, like the utilization of, of cheese, right? I don't want to sit down and like have a humongous plate of cheese and feel like, oh my gosh, like you do this responsibility, both ethically and, uh, you know, conceptually, like I got to finish this entire thing. I'm not going to feel good for a few days if that's the case. But by mm-hmm. buying and sourcing like some really good ingredients, you get this emotional satiation from like eating this really good piece of cheese. And it doesn't have to be all the time. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be all day uh, and every day. Although, you know, right. some people. Def- it was that weekend. No, oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. That was so. That was a bananas amount of cheese. I'm just going to say, like, I what? Think, I don't think I had regular for 72 hours <laughs> except for your lunch yeah <laughs> that was it I, I know like when we uh when we left the art of cheese i know when we were kind of mm-hmm. making our commute back to southwestern wisconsin it was like i need juice like i need a salad yeah. i need levity in my diet right now because uh you know we crushed <laughs> cheese all weekend and it was so fun i mean it was it was so rad to have all oh, not- Yeah, all those flavor profiles, all those amazing producers kind of coming together at once to really showcase, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the staple identity points of Wisconsin cuisine, which is our cheese. Uh, Mm -hmm. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, you know, uh, getting into that, that sustainability mindset, you know, a little bit of Wisconsin cheese can go a really long way. And if you feel like, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, tying in on the whole wheel, fine. You know, nobody here is going to judge you in the upper Midwest. Like, we get it. Sometimes you got to eat right. it. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, you can really moderate out both financially and emotionally, like the weight of that that beautiful product, and use it in smaller portion sizes that, you know, 
<laughs> there are so many research uh, studies out there that suggest that smaller portion sizes, you have lower risk of, you know, heart disease, you have greater longevity mm-hmm. in life, you're not constantly taxing your digestive system by filling it to the brim every single time you sit down. It's a very moderated dose mm-hmm. of uh, wonderful. And uh, I think we can all use mm-hmm. more moderated doses of wonderful in our lives. It, it really is uh, the gift that we can give ourselves. Mm-hmm. Good timing. I'm making a, I'm doing a little Halloween thing later and I'm making a huge charcuterie board. Yeah. But I actually have some cheeses that the Wisconsin cheese had sent me. So I'm ready to do those. But I was talking to one chef and I might have mentioned this on this podcast. I don't remember, but he told me that to take the leftover kind of cheeses and freeze them and then use it in a cheese sauce later. Sure. Or do some melt it down and stuff. And that's, that's so genius because charcuterie boards are one of the biggest wastes of food mm-hmm. ever. Because you don't want to keep it because people are touching it. That's right. And kind of gross. But um, <laughs> here's where we take a deep dive into like Olivia's phobias of like cross contamination <laughs> and people touching her food. Uh, this is a good reminder uh, to everyone out there listening to this. Please wash your hands uh, <laughs> as frequent Thank as you. possible. I'm going to play this when people come in. Yeah. <laughs> good. That's just awesome. Wash your hands. Please just wash your hands. It's cool. It takes 20 seconds to do it well. Uh, everybody wins, mm-hmm. uh, but especially Olivia. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. a couple things that, you know, sometimes we'll do to kind of work around that is we'll do individually plated charcuterie boards. And that way it's like more moderated bites because when you lay out those giant spreads, while it looks super awesome, by the time everybody kind of combs mm-hmm. through it and you get to the end of it, you know, it looks all beat up. And, uh, yeah. then you are left with this, this task of like, okay, what do I do with this? One of the things that I've actually taken to uh, when we cater is I always start with the cheese and charcuterie board and it's it's big and splashy and beautiful. But then at the end of the night, I always do pizzas, wood fired pizzas, and I save all those scraps from the charcuterie board and the cheeses. And we do like these really Mm -hmm. unique artisan pizzas with some of the best cheeses in the world and some of the best cured meats in the world. And like we find a way to repurpose all of that. That is so genius. I don't know why. How have I never thought of that? That's so smart. Well, thank you. Because it melts down anyway. Exactly. Yeah. You, um, you kill all the germs off, and the... yeah, it gets all the. Maybe a focaccia at the end of the night. You can do focaccia. Mm-hmm. Put your fingers, dimple it. Uh, of course, wash mm-hmm. your hands. But like you know, you can get all that that beautiful bread action. And then as people, you know, I'm not going to suggest that you might overserve your guests, but like, uh, as we it, about it's possible. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then everybody can have like a nice piece of like elegant focaccia made with the leftovers from Olivia's uh, charcuterie board. Okay. I love it. Sounds good. Wait, I want to hear more about your trip to Tokyo and Japan. Is that what you said you were? doing were you filming there yeah yes yes um so we kind of uncovered this storyline um with some friends of ours uh that kikoman the soy sauce manufacturer that uh you know is available in like all over the united states Mm -hmm. and north america and south america and central america Mm -hmm. their main production facility 
uh, is actually in Wisconsin. Oh, wow. And uh, I know it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. So it is a little bizarre. Um, You know, they've been a Wisconsin corporation now for 50 years. So they actually made the jump over and internationalized before like Toyota did, before Mm -hmm. Sony. You know, they they kind of immersed themselves in the fabric of of Americana. And Mm -hmm. they've been a they've been a Japanese corporation for 400 years. So we started this dive into Kikoman, like why Wisconsin first and foremost, like why if you could choose anywhere on the planet, would you choose to come here? And the answers for them are very, you know, black and white, simple. Uh, First and foremost, we have like uh, equidistant proximity to the coasts, uh, Mm -hmm. both East Coast and West Coast, which, you know, for most of us in the food world uh, is kind of the lifeline Mm -hmm. uh, for being able to get the good people of Los Angeles and New York, the the products that they desire. Mm -hmm. But then putting it in a place with ample access to clean water, Mm-hmm. Uh, because water is an essential ingredient in making soy sauce and then having access to like the local farmers, right? Like the soybean farmers, the wheat farmers that you need. And so they built this world-class facility. And in order to get a better understanding of like soy sauce and soy culture, we flew to Tokyo and worked with Kikoman in uh, Noda city is where their uh, Japanese plant is located in, in Chiba. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Chiba has actually, uh, that prefecture has been a sister state to Wisconsin since like the early 90s. So uh, we kind of have like established roots and connections there. But then as we started taping, uh, this amazing phenomenon occurred where Mm -hmm. we'd be going into, you know, the Izakayas and the Golden Guy in Shinjuku. And we'd find all these cultural connections between like people who had known of Wisconsin, either through the Milwaukee Brewers or the Mm -hmm. Packers or like the sports teams, you know, like, oh, yeah. But then like cheese, we actually found a pop up cheese shop uh, that was featuring American cheeses, which is kind of uh, a rarity in Japan. And uh, yeah, they had Wisconsin cheese all over this place. And so when we came in we're like, Hey, you know, we'd like to just do like a two hour interview segment and talk about like why this is important for the people of Japan. Yeah. There are so many like emerging cultural traditions Mm -hmm. that we take from each other. Mm -hmm. And they were enamored with the fact that like, Oh my gosh, you know, Andy Hatch, the man who produces Pleasant Ridge reserve. (laughs) Like this is, you know, that's rock star status. And uh, we, we kept finding, yeah, exactly. He is, right? He is. Oh my gosh. <laughs> did, you, did Was he wearing that jumpsuit? Uh, for, for those of you who weren't there uh, for Andy's <laughs> cheese tour, he was wearing like a Royal Tenenbaums Adidas jumpsuit with mm-hmm. uh, uplands on his... I was like, how do I get one of those, bro? Like, He's how sick. have you held me in the dark this long? Uh-huh. <laughs> he has some swag to He's him. Banana. I don't know. He's cool, dude. <laughs> he is. He is. Uh, we give him a hard time all the time. Uh, the first... The first like 10 times I met him, that dude wears like denim on denim on denim every single day of his life. And so I'm like, bro, you're dressed like Canadian all the time, uh, which is super cool. But like, how do you have so much swagger wearing denim on denim on denim? I, you know, I kind of Instagram stalked him before the first time we did a dinner together. And uh, he has this look of being casually disinterested, like kind of always 
Yes. You know, uh, he, 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 but he was like super casually disinterested on stage with Martha Stewart. I'm like, how can you be (laughs) that cool? How can you be that cool? Um, she was a snoop dog. Give me a break, man. Show some emotion. It's the denim. (laughs) It is. (laughs) So, uh, you know, through the process of, of, uh, being able to go through and like, capture these stories about why soy sauce is important and how that actually connects us. We actually Mm -hmm. left, uh, you know, Tokyo and Kyoto and Sendai feeling this overwhelming, uh, sense of, uh, you know, like the world is much smaller actually, uh, than we sometimes give it credit for. Mm -hmm. And although the Japanese culture and American culture are remarkably different, Mm -hmm. Uh, there still is this connective element of food and, and what we put in our bodies to nourish us and sustain us that we really do share with uh, places all over the planet. And uh, it was it was fantastic. I mean, Tokyo. Have you been to Tokyo? I have not. It's on my list, though. I was just talking about it the other yeah. day. I want to go so bad. You got to go. I mean, it's like an assault on on your brain, on your senses. Mm-hmm. I, I actually think it's brighter on some of the places in Tokyo at night than it is during the day. <laughs> like the sun is cool, but like having all Lights. these buildings light mm-hmm. up and just the humanity is just overwhelming. We did a, a taping pickup in this place uh, called Shibuya Crossing. Okay. And Shibuya Crossing is, has the reputation of being the busiest intersection on the planet. Okay. So, like, every time the light changes and the pedestrians walk, uh, and no one, no one jaywalks in Japan. Like, oh, for whatever reason, it's just, <laughs> oh, my gosh, right? Like, how, how did you figure that out? <laughs> but every time that light changes, 3,000 people estimated cross that intersection Whoa. at a time. Right? That's- and there are five inter- five intersections at this crossing. So it's like you do the math and you're like, that's 15,000 people, which is almost more than I have in my entire home County, just kind of like all making their way across the street. So, uh, the, the executive producer, Arthur Ersink, uh, we were, we were in, uh, Shibuya and I was like feeling all the feels of like, Oh my gosh, this is like, this is like LA on steroids. I mean, uh, this is so intense. And he's like, cool. I want you to, uh, go in the middle of the crossing the next time the light changes and, uh, you're going to film the cold intro to the show. And I was like, what? (laughs) And he's like, yeah. I'm like, dude, come on. Don't do that to me. You you can't do me like this. You know that like, uh, this is going to be a tremendous amount of performance anxiety. First and foremost, like, we're one of a handful of Americans here. But number two, like we've got the full camera crews, not like the, oh. the YouTubers, you know, holding up their, their cell phones and stuff, doing their little intros. He's like, yeah, but actually you get paid to do this. So you're going to go out there and do it. I was like, fine, <laughs> fine. You put it that way. I don't really have a choice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we went out there and like, I thought I got it on the first take. No, we did it again. It ended up being like the sequence of 15 cold openings that we filmed progressively. So we were like there through that many light changes. I I know that we got the shot in one of the takes, Uh but I think it was just fun for the crew and for the producers to basically watch me kind of like emerge out of the shell of being like, Oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. This is so Uh different from where I live and everything I've ever known. 
to being in like one of the busiest places on the planet. It was so rad. So rad. That's so cool. You said um, LA on steroids. I was going to say New York on speed. So that's funny. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like America on drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's so fun though. Imagine like Luke gets hit by a car like during the (laughs) intersection. Right? Or the 3,000 I know. I know. (laughs) Exactly. It's like you have literal waves of humanity kind of crashing over you and – you know, the, the, the Japanese people, while they're no stranger to, like, technology and, like, yeah. filming and, and all that, you know, they, there is, like, a, a modicum of, you know, a little bit of personal privacy. Like, not everybody wants to be on camera all the time. Right. So, you know, just being respectful. And also, like, a, a huge thing in Japan is, like, body and spatial awareness, mm. which they're constantly chastising Americans for not having <laughs> Uh, because we're accustomed to like walking down the street and being loud and like doing whatever it is yeah. we kind of feel like we need to do in that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Japan, that is that's very different. They don't they don't share that same custom. So you know, trying to feel my way through that as someone who brings, like I said, energy number one, and you know, participate in that in that culture and in that society, uh, while also making sure that we get everything we need for American television. It was right. super rad. It was That's so fun. So interesting. When is that coming out? Do you know? Yeah, so that'll air. Uh, I want to say March, okay. right around the time that um, we have another national production uh, that I did some work on here uh, in Wisconsin, okay. and uh, will also be uh, be coming out in March. I don't know. Have you ever heard of the the cooking show Top Chef? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, you you have. Okay, that's fantastic. Um, so yeah, Top Chef actually uh, wrapped their taping in Wisconsin oh, cool. um, uh, as of a couple weeks ago. So we've had, uh, you know, production crews all over the state and uh, they did an amazing job kind of showcasing some of the, the different culinary traditions that we, we hold. And bringing other chefs from places around the planet into this, like, love fest that uh, we celebrate here in the upper Midwest. Uh, So, uh, you know, those should all kind of coincide. And uh, hopefully by, you know, mid-March, Wisconsin's on the hearts and minds and lips of uh, the dining populations all over the United States and world. That's so exciting. Wow. Yeah. I have so many things to watch soon. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm you overwhelmed in Tokyo and then Top Chef. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of it was just comical. Me in Tokyo or me on Top Chef was also kind of overwhelming. Uh-huh. Um, I, I was just, it's a big production. And like, you know, uh, I definitely didn't want to tip it over. But maybe I maybe sort of kind of did. We'll see. We'll see how it all comes Make out in the edit. edit. <laughs> see, when I'm overwhelmed, I kind of just get quiet but do you kind of do that or are you even better under pressure my creativity gets better under pressure like i think that's something that uh as a chef i've uh really come to appreciate and respect Mm -hmm. you know when the when it turns up is usually when some of my better work comes out Mm -hmm. uh although people who cook with me would say that that's absolute garbage uh I, I use that as like maybe an excuse for not uh, being uh-huh. as planned out and articulate as some of my colleagues are, but yeah. you know, it works for me. So that's cool. <laughs> uh, but it, it, to be honest with you, uh, Olivia, I'm actually pretty introverted. So 
I go from like this, this stasis point of quiet and introspective Mm -hmm. and really kind of taking in my surroundings and being very appreciative in those moments Mm -hmm. to like having to explode with the energy and love. And I've I've learned uh, in my career that it's always a balance and a a harmony between the two. The more introspective I can be, um, usually the better quality I'm able to put out of food or bringing people into that moment with me. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And we were running like 14 to 16 hours a day in our production oh, wow. schedule. So it That's was long. just like, go, 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 go. And, uh, by the end of the trip, it was, you know, before the jet lag, I th- feel like my brain was absolutely <laughs> cashed. After the jet lag, as you can see, you know, like I'm a stumbling, fumbling mess. Uh, no, you're talking it is really well. You're totally fine. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you are. I've had a are. lot of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have a short game for you to wrap up the entire podcast if you're up for it. I'm, I'm down like a fat man on a seesaw. Okay. <laughs> I liked it. So I'll say five popular foods or food trends right now, and then you'll tell me if you're for or against or smash or pass kind of deal. Okay. Cool. Also, these are the most random I've done because I literally just thought them in my brain last night. (laughs) I'm being (laughs) so random. Awesome. Yeah, so you and I have that same creative connection. Like, (laughs) uh, the pressure helps. This is my midnight brain thinking. Okay. First one, fried chicken sandwiches. Smash. Solid. All right. Second, dried seaweed. Mm, pass. Me too. Yeah. It's okay. Third one, fried Oreos. The pass. That's interesting. I don't really like them either, but a lot of people do, so... Yeah, no, and I, and I don't judge anybody for that. It's just like, you know, when is too much of a good thing a bad thing? Like, yeah, just because we can deep fry it doesn't mean that we necessarily should. I was on a taping this summer at the Wisconsin State Fair, and they handed me, and, and you know, I, I have no idea the demographic that follows this podcast, but they handed me a dildog. A oh. dildog at the Wisconsin okay. State Fair is a dill pickle that's been hollowed out and it has a hot dog shoved in it. And then they put oh, it no. in the corn dog batter and fry it. Right. And like, I had to okay. almost unhinge my jaw to get that thing in. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the B roll and like the outtakes of that scene are going to be so magnificent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I definitely like, okay, you can deep fry it. Let's not go crazy. And I uh, kind of feel that Oreos are great. Uh, fried foods have their place, um, but they don't mm-hmm. always have to, you know, they don't have yeah. to, right? Oh. That's just slut. That's a Come no on. from me. <laughs> no from me. Wow. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> um, so now I have to watch you eat that. Thank yeah. you. Top chef. Okay, I have a lot to do. Yeah. <laughs> Number four, eggnog. It's timely. Ooh. Uh, me encanta la eggnog. Uh, I love it. It's, it's, I mean, I get it. Some people don't like it. There's like textural issues. You know, you're kind of drinking this, like, is it mm-hmm. raw? Is it cooked? But, um, 
eggnog is kind of my jam, although I can have like the smallest quantity of it and still feel like it go down my throat and like straight onto my ass. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't need very much of it, but because it's, it's just going to make me feel bad about myself if I, if I go too ham, but like, yeah, it's, it's delicious. Sometimes when I'm eating dessert, I'm like, I could feel it going straight to my ass, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Do you smash or pass on eggnog? I, I'm going to pass, but I can't say I've tried it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think I've actually tried it because I always just assumed it'd be a pass. And I hate those kind of people. So now I need to try it. <laughs> All right. I, I'm going to do some of the world's best eggnog. My homies at okay. Organic Valley, every year around the holiday, they put out eggnog and it is the jam. Mm, okay. I'll take your word for it. Okay. I like cool. hot chocolate, but it has to be like good hot chocolate. You right. Know? You don't want any of that swaggy stuff. Yeah. No, I like I like yeah. the real chocolate, you know. Yeah. Okay. Number five, final one, cranberry sauce. Yeah, smash. Smash all day. Uh, Wisconsin is the leading producer of cranberries in the entire world. So like I would lose I did. my Wisconsin. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd lose my Wisconsin card if I said uh, pass on cranberry sauce. <laughs> Although I will say, like, I'm not a super huge fan of, like, you know, when you open it up, uh, if you get it in a can, if you're, you know, like, yeah. you get it and you, like, dump it and it still holds the shape of the can. That's mm -hmm. kind of grody. Um, yeah. And I always feel like I can taste the can. But uh, if you've ever had, like, homemade or well-made cranberry sauce, it can be divine. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just heard a story about that. That's actually why I remembered that it's one of the leading producers because I was writing a story that you could use frozen instead of fresh and it might be a little bit cheaper for yeah. people to use. But yeah, the canned stuff, it like jiggles and it's all gross. <laughs> Seriously. You just want to tap it a couple times just to, you know, it's like hitting the wine bag. You're like, ah, I got to do it. Sorry. <laughs> Whoa, whack, whack. Whoa, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> slap in the wine bag exactly yeah. <laughs> oh it's so satisfying <laughs> <laughs> all right my last and final question for you that i ask every guest if there is one cooking appliance or utensil that you think everyone should splurge on what would it be and why hmm cooking utensil that everyone should splurge on well i mean like the, the easy go-to are good knives. So like, this is the most like chef driven thing in the world, but uh, I've definitely held the position for a long time that knives often change the way I approach food. And whenever I'm feeling kind of burnt out on like cooking or like, Oh my gosh, I don't really want to like tackle all that prep work. I get a new knife and suddenly like the food is alive and I can't wait to experience it through the lens of that new utensil and piece of cooking equipment. And then I get like all geeked out on making sure that it stays like super razor sharp. And, you know, it's kind of a swagger piece when you braid it out, you're like, check this mm -hmm. thing out, you know? <laughs> uh, so if you're feeling like uh, you want to really get to know a piece of equipment, mm -hmm. you can utilize it every day. You can utilize it on special occasions. You can utilize it only when like you want to prepare the most articulate vegetables or fruits or, you know, meats that you can afford in your budget. Always mm -hmm. go with a new piece, uh, a new shank. Like, uh, it, you, you really can't go wrong. So <laughs> I would say that's my safe answer. How was that? I love 
the shank reference. It's hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, kitchen culture and prison culture, uh, while I want to say uh, it's very <laughs> far apart, uh, the mentality is kind of, you know, uh, very close. <laughs> <laughs> so funny um well thank you so much for taking the time out even though you're jet lagged and <laughs> i appreciate it this is no this has been a riot you're a good human olivia i appreciate you i appreciate you taking the time to come to wisconsin and see who we are and what we do and mm-hmm. uh how much love and attention to detail really goes into uh to the food that we produce here. And uh, I'm so honored and thrilled with the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You're you're really wonderful. And I hope people take something from this conversation at the very least that they should visit Wisconsin. Amen, so. sister. Bring them on. We'd love to have them. <laughs> All right, so you can check out Luke on Instagram at Forever Forward Wis, which is short for Wisconsin, I'm guessing. Yes. Or watch Wisconsin Foodie on YouTube or PBS. What time is it normally on? 7.30, Thursday nights. Love it. Hey, fellow foodies. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave me a review. And while you're at it, make sure to follow me at Living for Food Pod on Instagram or TikTok or email me at livingforfoodpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you're cooking up this week, which guests you would like to see on the podcast, or tell me your opinions on the latest viral food trend. Until next time.